Art had mentioned that I had an announcement as well relating to this evening's prayer meeting. This uh, summer, I met with a group of uh, young men from the college and career age class here at Foothill that I've had the privilege of teaching in now since uh, April, I think it is. And we met this summer for a preaching lab. And so uh, once a week, all summer long, I met with these, I think it was nine or ten guys, and, and uh, we worked through the interpretation of a particular passage together, and we talked about how do you form that into uh, something that's preachable. And then we sent them home to prepare a sermon, come and preach it in front of all of us. We filmed them, we critiqued them, we sent them home to die a thousand deaths as they watched themselves on film. We made them come back and preach it again and noted the, uh, the improvement. And then we chose the best preacher of the bunch. And we uh, said to them that they were going to have the privilege of preaching the first Sunday of the month in October at the prayer meeting. And so Luke Ree is, uh, was the preacher who was chosen to, uh, to do that. And so I want you to come tonight. I mean, there's so many reasons to be here, but this is just one more. I want you to come out and support Luke and to hear this young man who the Lord is uh, doing things in his life, and he's going to open the Word of God and preach. It's about a 25-minute sermon, and I want you to come and hear it because it's good. Okay? So you come, you hear him, and you support him in that. The uh, last uh, several weeks have uh, been quite a ride on Wall Street. I think you'd have to live in a cave to not be aware of what's going on here. More than a trillion dollars in personal wealth has evaporated the last couple of weeks, and there's a good chance that there's more bad news coming. Even some have likened it unto the Great Depression, which I think is perhaps a bit overstated, but in any case. You know, after the Great Depression, many of the banks in this country uh, launched into a different style of building program. That is, they, they built these fortified buildings that, that looked and had all the appearances of fortresses. Local bank on the corner, you know, this big stone affair that looked impregnable. And they did that uh, not so much to keep out bandits, although certainly that helps, but it was done to create an impression it was done to create the impression that banks were rock solid and not susceptible to failure. You remember leading into the Great Depression was that run on the banking system in which many, many banks collapsed. So they built with their architecture to communicate a message that said, hey, we're going to be here no matter what. How times have changed, huh? Who would have thought just even a couple of months ago, that some of the household names in banking would disappear, would vanish, would have so quickly gone broke. There are turmoil, there is turmoil in the financial markets. And people are looking for security. They are looking for security. Another place where people are looking for security is in relationships, personal relationships. We live in a day when many, many children grow up knowing the pain of divorce. 
absentee fathers, single mothers. It's a huge, huge problem in this country. Furthermore, people use each other's bodies for their own sexual gratification and then they lie to each other and call it love. We live in a day when people are looking for security in relationships. It's also a time in the church when many are discouraged. They've been deceived by a performance-based Christianity. They wonder deep down inside, does God really love me? Does God really love me? They live their lives as if they're on an eggshell, kind of walking around half expecting God like some angry parent to lower the boom on them the minute they mess up. They're perpetually unsure of themselves and where they stand before God. Their worship is stunted, lifeless. Others in the church have grown up under a system, a system of theology that teaches that the gift of salvation can be forfeited. They find themselves getting saved and lost and saved again over and over, sometimes all in the same week. Beloved, these things should not be. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, page 1132. If you're using a pew Bible. Romans 8, and we're going to begin in verse... 31, and we're going to finish the 8th chapter of the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Entitled this message, Secure in His Love. People are looking for security in all the wrong places. If you know Jesus Christ this morning and your Savior, you can be absolutely secure in His love. Beginning in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. With these verses, Paul closes out chapter 8. And he closes out not only chapter 8, but he closes out the first half of this whole letter, this whole epistle. This is the high watermark of all that he has been driving towards for these eight chapters. Verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? These things is a a reference to all that has gone before. In its closest context, it's a reference to verses 29 and 30 where Paul has laid out the golden chain of redemption. Starting with the foreknowledge of God before the world was even created and ending in the future glorification of His children. One link joined to another, pushing inextricably to the end that those whom God has foreknown, He will ultimately glorify. He loses no one along the way. And so Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? But it's more than just this golden chain of redemption. It pushes back even further and sweeps up in it this expression, these things. It pulls together all the truth that has gone before. The truth beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, running all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, of the depravity of man. It sweeps up the truth beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and running all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, of the justification of that sinful humanity. And it scoops up the truth beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 30, where Paul speaks about the sanctification or the holiness, the growing in holiness of those justified saints. What then shall we say to these things? That is, all that has gone before us. Paul wants us to reflect. He wants us to think back. He wants us to recall. To remember God's great plan of redemption and its ability to hold on to us both in this life and the next. Now structurally, this climactic section can be broken down beginning here in verse 31 into a series of four rhetorical questions and answers. Four rhetorical questions and answers. That's how Paul finishes this section. He asks these questions and he answers his own questions. And in the process, he demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that the child of God is absolutely secure in the Father's love. Beloved, this is a high watermark in the book of Romans. So let's take a look at these four questions together. Let's take a look at these four questions together. The first question appearing here in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? Question number one. If God is for us, who is against us? Now, just a grammatical observation here in verse 31. 
The Greek conditional particle A, or translated if here for you, is not to create uncertainty as if we're not sure that God is for us. Actually, it could quite nicely be translated since. Since God is for us, who is against us? Since God is for us, who is against us? Paul is not trying to create uncertainty here. What he's doing is drawing out the reality of what it means to be in a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, His Son. And in this question, Paul is issuing a challenge. You see it? Since God is for us, challenge, who is against us? Step forward. Present your case. Reveal yourself. Who are you that stand against the people of God? He's calling for our adversaries to draw up in battle array against us. And then for us to step back and let God, our champion, step into the gap and fight in our place. God is for us. Used over, by the way, in Mark chapter 9, verse 40, to speak of God on our or to be on our side. And I think that's a good way to look at it here. Since God is on our side, verse 31, who is against us? We have God on our side. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, think back with me here, in the night in which Jesus was betrayed and then arrested, He was there in that garden on the Mount of Olives and... Judas, along with the temple guards and 600 Roman soldiers, came to arrest him. You remember that. And as they entered the garden, Jesus stepped forward into the, to the light of the torches. And he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And at that point, Jesus answered, I am. The very name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When Jesus spoke to them at the sound of His voice speaking the sacred name of God, I am, the whole Roman cohort fell flat on their face. How? Why? What knocked them down? The answer is simple. They had come into the presence of God Almighty. It's so dramatic, in fact, that Peter was immediately emboldened to pull out a short sword and take a whack at the head of the slave of the high priest. Remember? His aim wasn't too good. He only got his ear. But Peter was ready to take on the whole Roman cohort. 600 trained soldiers plus temple guards with a short little sword. Why? Peter knew. If he got in trouble, Jesus only needs to say, I am, and down they all go again. Beloved, that's, that's what it's like here. That's what Paul is saying here, verse 31. Since God is on our side, who is against us? What enemy can array themselves against us and prevail? the modern vernacular, we could say, bring it on. Bring it on. Since God is on our side. I mean, we have many enemies in this world as Christians. There's no doubt about it. 
Bible tells us the world, the flesh, and the devil are all actively opposing us. They seek our ruin. But God is on our side. We have no need to fear. No need to fear. Remember the lesson of verse 28. Let your eye go back up there. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Nothing is so strong in its opposition to us that God can't and God doesn't overwhelm it and force it to work for our good. Since God is on our side, who is against us? Second question. Verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? This is an incredible verse. Verse 32. It's really amazing because it it speaks of the kindness, of the mercy, of the mind-boggling grace of God. He who did not spare His own Son. You should hear in your mind the echo of Genesis 22. It should be rolling around in the back of your mind there where Abraham was called upon to offer his son Isaac. Do you remember? His only son. Paul's reminding us here that God not only offered His only son, but unlike Abraham, when his son Isaac was returned back to him, God's only begotten son went all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. God not only offered up His Son, but He carried through on the offer. He slayed Him in our place. He drank the cup of the wrath of God all the way down to the final drop. There was no escape for Christ Jesus. Look at it. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son. You know, when a judge spares a criminal, he refrains from exacting the penalty that is due. But God did not spare His own Son. God did not lighten. God did not withhold the penalty due for our sin. Not one little bit. Like the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 10, says the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Second Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus was made sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus was made a curse. And the Father delivered His own Son over to damnation and punishment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he cried. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. This argument is based upon the reality that God has done the most difficult, the most costly thing. He's given the greatest gift imaginable. He has sacrificed His only beloved Son on our behalf. And if He has done that, He will then give everything else that is of a lesser value that is necessary. Look again at the verse. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us 
all things. All things. He will give to His children the fullness of salvation. He will give to His children everything necessary to ensure our perpetual standing as sinners wearing the robe of the righteousness of Christ. There is nothing He will withhold. Listen to me. If the Father gave His only begotten Son, He delivered Him up to the agony, to the shame of the cross, how could He possibly fail to bring about the result that required such a horrendous event to occur in the first place? How could God fail to follow through? He crushed His own Son. Is it going to fail then after that? Listen to me. The death of Christ does not provide potential salvation. It waits upon humanity's fickle desire to embrace it or not. The excruciating death of the only begotten Son of God secured the redemption of the elect irresistibly and irrevocably secure in their faith in Christ. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also freely give us all things? Answer, He will. Third question. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The idea of bringing a charge is a a legal concept. It's the idea of bringing a charge against someone in a court of law. Here we have a future tense verb. And and so the court of law envisioned here is the final judgment. The final judgment. The, The effect of the question is to basically say that at the final judgment, who will dare to bring a charge against me? Against you. Who are wrapped in the robe of Christ. It won't be Satan. Even though he is the accuser of the brethren. It won't be other people pointing out my flaws, and there are many. It won't even be my own conscience that is intimately aware of all the places I fall short. All the deceitful, despicable thoughts, words, and deeds. Beloved, it's not even God Himself. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Look at that verse. God is the one who justifies. Even God Himself will not bring a charge against us in the final day. Why? Because He has justified us. He is the one who has justified us. He has acquitted us. He has declared us righteous because we have exchanged our guilt for Christ's righteousness. Who would dare attempt to condemn us? Who is the one who 
condemns? Answer, nobody. Nobody. These accusations are like tennis balls bouncing off the turret of an Abram's tank. They don't stick. They don't do any damage. Justified in Jesus Christ. Able to stand in the judgment. Notice Paul goes on, verse 34. Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He reminds us that our security is grounded in the actions of the Son. It is because what Christ has done for us and is doing for us, these accusations don't stick. Paul briefly highlights four, four actions of the Son on our behalf here in this verse. Very simple. Christ Jesus is He who died. It's a very simple statement. And in that statement, Paul compresses all the wonder and all the horror of Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death. He is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Paul speaks of His resurrection the definitive proof that Christ Jesus came to die not for His own sin, but for the sin of His people. Death could not hold Him. He had never sinned. He was raised. Who is now at the right hand of the Father. He sits in the place of, of authority, the place of power, the place of glory, the place from which He exercises dominion over heaven and earth. Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and earth, Christ says, from His position at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110, verse 1. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. From this position of sovereignty, no enemy power can wrench His people from His hand. He also intercedes for us. Do you see it? Verse 34. He makes intercession for us. He is our great High Priest. He is constantly speaking on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. says he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, no matter, no matter how much you mess up, no matter how many times you fall, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what accusation is hurled against you, Jesus is right there. He's right there. Interceding on your behalf. Speaking to the Father on your behalf, as it were. Saying, Father, my blood covers this one too. My blood covers this one too. 1 John 2.1 If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
today, right now, in glory, the exalted Son of God is interceding on your behalf. He is speaking to the Father for you. He is pleading His blood on your behalf. All of your sin, all of your shortcomings, all of your failures covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Fourth question. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, Paul. He loves me. I I got it. I understand that now. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. But but maybe, maybe, Paul, something can can get in there and make a space. That's, that's what it means to separate, literally to put a space between us. Maybe, maybe something can put a wedge in there. Put some distance between Christ's love for me. Maybe, maybe something or someone can cause Christ to stop loving me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So Paul gives an account here of seven enemies. Seven things that are dangers, difficulties faced by the people of God. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. Paul says tribulation, pressure, or distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, literally poverty, or peril, or sword. Can any of these things do it? Can they create space between Christ and me? Can they cause Him to love me any less? Can they somehow pry me loose? By the way, Paul was intimately acquainted with these kinds of dangers, these kinds of threats. You can find every one of these over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27, chapter 12, verse 10, he, he speaks of them. All except sword, which is death, and that later you'll find in 2 Timothy. These things speak of Paul's own personal experience. They also speak of the experience of the people of God for all generations. Look to verse 36. Paul cites Psalm 44, verse 22. He says, For just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The troubles we face are, are nothing new. There's something that, that have always been the experience of the people of God. The people of God have always been considered as no better than sheep headed off to the marketplace to be slaughtered. It's all we are. It's how the world sees us. It's how the world treats us. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. In an extremely strong statement of contrast, Paul says, regardless of the outward appearances in which Christians are counted as nothing, yea, less than nothing. 
Christians are regularly suffering. Living a life that apparently mocks their claim to be children of the King. Paul says, in spite of all the outward appearances that things are going bad, we overwhelmingly conquer. Do you see it? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Folks, we don't just squeeze by. The Christian life is not just squeezing by, not just getting by. We don't eke out a victory in the final seconds with a, with a quick field goal. We crush them. Our opposition receives a crushing defeat. We overwhelmingly conquer. Do you see it? Overwhelmingly conquer. Is that because we're so good at hanging on to God? Is that why? Is that why tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, poverty, nakedness, peril, the sword, is that why it can't affect us? Because you know what? i got a really strong hold on Christ. No. No, it's not based on our strong hold on Him. It's based on His strong hold on us. He has a firm grip on us. It's based upon His ability to hang on to me, not mine to hang on to Him. We overwhelmingly conquer. Beloved, but it's not through my courage. It's not through my endurance. It's not through my determination to hang in there, although those things are important. It's through Christ. you see it again? Verse 37. We overwhelmingly conquer. Look at it. Through Him who loved us. It's Christ hanging on to me. We participate in the victory He's already won on His cross. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. We, uh, we take our grandchildren, or at least we've started this tradition with one grandchild, another one soon to come. Uh, to take them to the zoo when they turn four years old. So we take them down to the zoo. So when we get down to the San Diego Zoo with my granddaughter, my instruction to her is hold on to Grampy's hand. Okay, We're going to walk through the zoo here. There's a lot of people, so hold tight on to Grampy's hand. Well, let me ask you a question. Is her security, her, her protection... Is it based on the ability of the four-year-old to hang on to Grampy's hand or is it based on Grampy's hold on her hand? You know the answer. You know the answer. Beloved, it's the same way with God. It's the same way with God. Our security in Christ is based not on my grip on Him. It is not on my ability to hang tight onto Him. It is His ability and willingness to hang tight on me. He will not let me go. Paul says, I'm convinced. Verse 38, you see it? I am convinced. This is a settled certainty with him. Nothing can come between him and his God. We need to be able to make this kind of statement. This should be our personal confession of faith as well. 
We need to be able to say, I stand convinced that nothing can separate me. Because of my good behavior, because of my strong faith, because of my grip upon God, no! Because of His grip on me. He will not let me go. He will not turn me loose. Look at verse 38-39. Paul demonstrates the certainty of his conviction here with a series of contrasting couplets. I'm convinced, I stand convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, and he inserts this word powers, we'll talk about it in a minute, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins by speaking of death. He says, I stand convinced that death cannot separate me from God. Now, I don't know if death was in his mind because of what he's just spoken about in verse 36, quoting Psalm 44, speaking about being slaughtered. But death is indeed an enemy. Death is an enemy. It is the dreaded separation of loved ones. It is the scourge of mankind. Nothing's more painful. Nothing is more fearful. Nothing is more uncertain than death. Yet for the Christian, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's another way to say what he's saying here, that death cannot separate him. That's why he can say, by the way, over in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is it gain, Paul? It's because I will be forever in the presence of God. Death cannot separate. Neither can life. In spite of its trials, in spite of its distresses, in spite of its enticements, in spite of its distractions, death cannot separate, nor can this life. I stand convinced, neither death nor life, nor anything from the spirit realm, angels or principalities, demons, I believe, neither good angels nor the fallen angels, the demons, which would include Satan himself, not even these Powerful beings can separate me from Christ. They can't put the smallest dent. They can't create the smallest crack in the love of God for me. Paul goes beyond that. He, he speaks of the effect of time. Do you see it? Nor things present, nor things to come. He says, time can't affect my union with Christ. Nothing that's happening today nor the thing that I fear most tomorrow can in any way diminish God's love for me. Nothing. I can face the future with confidence. Whatever comes my way, 
Whatever difficulty, whatever trouble, whatever tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword, whatever life brings my way, I can face it with confidence. Because my God inhabits the future and He's waiting there for me with His arms wide open. Nothing can separate me. Paul says, nor powers. You see it? Nor powers. Dunamis. There's some difference of opinion here, but I think he's talking about miracles. Same word. Used that way a number of times. I think he's talking about miracles. And I think he's talking in particular about the counterfeit miracles of the evil one. Second Thess, chapter 2, verse 9. I think what Paul's saying is that not even deception carried out at that level can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Well, if the supernatural can't do it, how about the natural world? Is there anything in the natural world that can pick me off? Nope. Not a thing. Neither heaven nor hell nor any creature that inhabits them. Nothing can separate me. No power can pick me off. This, by the way, includes Christians themselves. Nothing can pick you off. Praise God for people who are alert, compassionate. We'll pray for her. What's your name? She had a seizure. Okay. Someone called the ambulance. Remember her name? Diana. Let's pray. Father of all love and mercy, we beseech you on behalf of Diana. Our Father, that you would intervene to provide for her, to care for her. Lord, that you would bring proper medical care to her and they would enable, be enabled to help her. I thank you for those in the body here who are alert to when someone is struggling and compassionate to come alongside and to help them. Please glorify yourself even in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Folks, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even a broken health. Not height. Not depth. Not any other created thing. Can separate us from the love of God which comes to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that love this morning?
That's the question you need to ask yourself. Do you know that kind of love this morning? Have you experienced the love of Jesus Christ through a personal faith commitment to Him? If you have not, do you know how to receive it? When we finish here, there will be some folks available over by that lighted cross. They would like to speak with you on these things. To talk to you, to to show you how you too can know with with the certainty that Paul writes of here that your future is secure in the love of God. We have the privilege of taking communion together this morning.